An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside Aid, it's my pleasure to welcome Adam Barsky, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer for the New York Power Authority. I've been looking forward to this. Adam and I overlapped in financial management for the city of New York when I was running the pension funds, and he was the first deputy and then acting commissioner of the Department of Finance. Since then, he's gone on to an incredible career in both the public and private sector. In the private sector, he spent 11 years as the executive vice president and chief risk officer for IDB Bank, one of the world's 300 largest banks. In the public sector, He's been the chief of staff for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which runs all the bridges and tunnels coming into New York City. He was the budget director and CFO for the city of New York. He served in the New York governor's office as the point person for all the state's authorities, as well as its financing and New York City issues. He's chaired organizations that invested tens of billions of dollars on behalf of taxpayers, including the New York City Employees Retirement System, and also on authorities that borrowed billions including the Municipal Water Finance Authority and the Transitional Finance Authority. Adam's a CPA and one of the most qualified people I know to talk about how, with billions of dollars are at stake, life in the public and private sectors differ, or doesn't. Welcome, Adam. Appreciate your very generous introduction and happy to uh, you know, participate in your show and offer any insights that you find meaningful. Let's get a little background. What's your origin story? You got a degree in accounting. You worked as an accountant. How'd you find your way into this series of increasingly important public sector finance jobs? What were the key points along that way? Well, you know, it really started when I was back in college. I um, was never very much involved in college clubs, activities, things of that nature. But I became interested as it became time to start thinking about graduating. What was I going to do next? And I needed to get some work experience, et cetera, et cetera. So long story short, I had an opportunity. Somebody came to me and said, this person just became elected uh, a student government president and they need somebody to be a controller for the, the student government. And the student government at that time had lots of assets. It had over a $3 million budget. And I, I said, wow, you know, at, at this stage should be running an organization with 92, you know, clubs and organizations and $3 million budget and all this property and all this other stuff. I said, that's could be a great experience to have before entering the work world. So I went into student government and that sort of gave me my, that bug into both politics and student government. The president at the time was a guy named Richard Schaefer, who went on to, uh, he had always told me as soon as he graduated, he was going to run for public office. And I said, sure, sure, sure. And he graduated and, and sure enough, he decided to run for county legislator in 1987 and asked me to become his campaign treasurer. 
he won and uh there were a lot of other wins out there and uh, that's and then at that point i was going back to you know back to grad school i was working at um and wall street after having spent some time at arthur anderson and he said well instead of doing that how would you like to become the comptroller for the town of babylon the fourth largest town in new york state had an over 200 million dollar budget working on very important things he said you know this is obviously bigger than what you did in student government but again being somebody who was 24 years old and having an opportunity to manage the affairs of one of the largest townships in the state if not the country I thought was a tremendous uh, opportunity. So I uh, took him up on that. I canceled my plans or deferred my plans to go back to uh, to graduate school and began working as the town controller for Babylon, which I spent there for about five years. And again, I became immersed in public service government, working on very important projects. And uh, that, that kind of got, got me going, if you will. I actually want to skip the politics because there are enough political podcasts. So let's talk about finance for a second. As you say, you, you were telling Babylon, say New York. Most people I have found have no idea how sophisticated government finance is. As an example, I remember when I left the city after running the pension funds for four years, and we had excess returns compared to our peer universe and everything else. And someone said to me very dismissively, well, that was the public sector. You know, as if it didn't count, as if we were investing in some alternative universe of bonds and stocks and real estate and whatnot. Now, you've worked at the highest reaches of finance in both the public and the private sector. So I'm going to ask you to compare and contrast to what are the differences? What are the similarities? They have their own challenges. I think the public sector is certainly more impactful and meaningful in terms of the results of what it is that you are doing. The numbers in many cases are much larger than you see in the private sector. Um, so the stakes are higher, but I do agree with you that people act as if, well, that doesn't count. Like that's uh, make believe land. But what I would say is that the people, if you look at the people who have been most successful in the private sector, I would point to a number of examples, but those people who have had their feet in both places, public and private sector, I think. You, you, you need to have a little bit of both. Well, public has potential shortcomings because you may never have seen the sort of uh, what it means to really own a P&L and you don't necessarily get to determine what your revenues are going to be next year by raising taxes. So you have to work with uh, the revenues that are available to you. So you have to make tough choices uh, harder sometimes than it is in, in public sector, um, but also just in terms of, you know, that, that level of accountability, if you will, is a little bit different in the private sector, but the public sector has all these greater challenges and greater things that it is getting done. So if you look at some of the major firms, Goldman Sachs is a great example. Goldman Sachs has produced so many people who have now, who left Goldman to go into public sector in some shape or form, and then sometimes come back either to Goldman or to some other area in private and it made things even bigger. So they've seen that the value of having that sort of that back and forth, say the same thing about the Carlisle group. You look at people like David Rubenstein or um, Frank Carlucci. Frank Carlucci was a former budget director uh, under uh, Ronald Reagan, a former defense secretary. David Rubenstein was a uh, deputy secretary in the health and human services under Jimmy Carter. I mean, these are titans of industry 
who, you know, cut their teeth in many ways in the public sector. So, you know, I, I think that the back and forth is very important. And the people that are actually at those highest levels, like I just mentioned, do really appreciate what it means um, to be in the public sector. And I will also tell you that, you know, so many people I do know, you know, the reason that people stay out of the public sector is usually because of affordability. You know, if they're talented and if they're not already self-made people, they find that the pressures of their family life or other things that they are needing to do, they just need to make more money than what the public sector can afford. But what I do find is either those people that can afford it or also reach the point in their careers where they've made money, and that's not the major consideration in their life at the point, they are very quick to jump into the public sector because they do see that the work can be more rewarding, more meaningful, more impactful. And, you know, I've seen that time and again. And the funniest thing about it is the one observation I would have is that some of those people that were in private sector for a long time and were always curious what it was like to be in the public sector, when they do finally get their chance, all of them come back and say, man, I had no idea how hard that really is. I've never worked so hard in my life. Forget about all the years I spent in the private sector. I never worked harder than when I took this government job. And the, the view that government people don't work hard, I think, is one of the biggest misnomers that's out there. You talked about having an impact, and, and that is one of the real benefits of public service done well. When you think about your career, what are the positive moments that stand out? Where do you take comfort from knowing that you help make a difference? Well, fortunate for me, we probably don't have enough time to hit on all of them. But uh, I, I, again, the, the reason that I do what I do is because of exactly that, is to have um, impact, make a difference that you can't replicate anywhere else. I'll, I'll name a few. I did a couple of big things. The first big thing I did when I was with the city was do an audit of our airport leases with the Port Authority, which led to a $400, $500 million claim against the Port Authority, but eventually allowed the city to renegotiate its long-term lease with the Port Authority in a way that was going to make a big difference on how the Port Authority made their investments into the airports and other things that were very important to our New York City and its economic development. So I was very proud of that. Um, when I went into the Department of Finance and something I'd worked on during the campaign and, and the white papers and things of that, I was part of a group working with Debbie Wright, who was the uh, HPD commissioner at the time. Together, me and her worked under John Dyson, and we ended in-rem housing, uh, as it is known in the city. Do you have a, what did it interject? Well, I just want to say HPD, for those of you not familiar with terminology, is the New York City's housing department. Yeah, sorry. A lot of acronyms when we talk about governmental stuff. So, yes, yeah, so Debbie was in charge of housing. I was working in finance and John Dyson, who was deputy mayor, was in charge of both housing and finance, uh, as well as economic development. So we ended something called in-rem housing. And what does that mean? The city had a, a certain way in which it dealt with unpaid property taxes. And if people that were running big buildings didn't pay their taxes, well, interest would accrue at a very high interest rate, 18%. And it was allowed to accrue for a period of almost eight years until action was taken. And if they didn't pay within those eight years, well, the city would just take the property. It's called in rem, which sort of means in mass. It would just take all the properties that had not paid 
and it would take it over into city ownership. Now, that policy was horrendous in terms of its impact on housing in New York City because here it was, they were basically giving a, uh, a, a, a free loan to all of these bad landlords who just sucked the money out of properties, didn't put money in. And meanwhile, they weren't paying property taxes and they would continue to suck the money out of these properties until they had to give it back to the city. But by then they'd made their money. They were on their way in these, these city buildings or housing buildings in the city were had disinvestment, were run down, dilapidated, uh, lots of complaints from tenants. And then the city would have to come in, take it over, now put money into it, which hadn't been invested. And it would end up owning these properties for over 20 years and in total probably spend another, you know, over $2 billion on those properties before they would ever get them to return to the private sector. So we created a program to avoid that by A, selling tax liens and securitizing tax liens and using that as a primary collection method to address these issues before they came into city ownership. And then also have a, a plan in which we could take properties that were truly on the, on the edge and had significant housing issues and turn those over to special not-for-profits in the housing sector that could properly manage it and take it away from the owners without it having to go into city ownership. So that was a major change in what the city had done for the prior hundred years. And that method of doing that has been in place since 1996. So when I look back on it and to say that it's had an impact, it really has. And, um, and that was something that, you know, I was, I was very proud of as a finance person. We were able to get the city's credit rating to the highest level it had ever been since the financial crisis from when the city almost defaulted on its bonds and, and went bankrupt. So, you know, that was a testament to, I think, all the things that we did to get the city to that financial hell. And, you know, all the things that we did really helped prepare us as a management team to deal with 9-11 when it happened. People, I think, believe that, you know, there were a lot of things that were done very well. There were everything was done well. Um, there was certainly a share of criticism, but the response from the city working with the state and the federal government to 9-11, I think was a significant accomplishment. I was very proud to be uh, in the middle of all of that in terms of everything from getting the stock exchange opened on that Monday, the September 17th, to keeping Broadway open when they threatened to go dark, making sure the utilities were able to get hooked into downtown debris power back to certain areas that had no power, you know, all of those things. And, you know, talking about the pension funds, John, you know, I convinced the mayor and the controller at the time saying, look, we know we're going to open up on Monday, the stock exchange, you know, what's going to happen. People are going to sell their stocks because they're in fear. I said, we have, we're one of the largest stockholders in America. I was chairman of the pension fund at the time. And I said, we should make a statement saying we're going to be buyers of stocks on Monday to help bring confidence to the market. And we went in and we bought equities and we bought the broad stock market in, in a meaningful way at that time as a vote of confidence in, in our financial system and saying that we weren't going to allow it to be threatened by these terrorist acts. And I think that had a very positive effect. And in fact, it turned out to be a phenomenal investment for New York City pension funds because the return from that day on forward was you know significant, as you know. So, you know, but those things I was really proud about in terms of the response to 9-11 and then having that opportunity a year or two later 
working for the governor as his deputy secretary for public authorities to be the point person in charge of helping to rebuild the World Trade Center and being part of that master plan that, you know, with Daniel Liebskind and, um, and working with Larry Silverstein and putting together with the Port Authority, a whole plan, including the memorial and the and, and National 9-11 Museum and now the Performing Arts Center. Um, all of those things, I think, were, were, you know, really important to be able to put that plan together and put it forth that we could show how we actually were able to come back uh, bigger and better than before. The New York Power Authority, where you are the CFO and Executive VP, would be a major utility for this public, and most people don't know it exists. Tell us about it. Right. And, and we like it that way, John, because. Well, I'm sorry, but you were invited on the podcast to tell us about it. So you don't have the option. Yes. No, no. We, I mean, we, we like the fact that you know, we, we joke about it sometimes, but because we're not distribution and we're not retail, uh, we're not the, the, the people that people want to curse and blame and want to throw rocks at when, you know, their power goes out during a storm. You know, we're more behind the scenes. We are a a wholesaler, if you will. And, and, uh, just to give a back, brief background on the New York power authority. So we were created in 1931 and we ended up, you know, we were brainchild of FDR at the time. And, uh, in terms of being able to put major public works in, in, in place, which I think was the basis and foundation for, uh, the new deal and some of the things he did with the CWA and, and, and putting people to work during the depression. We were a big part of that because uh, the New York Power Authority uh, developed two major plants that are in existence to today that run on hydropower and very inexpensive hydropower. And they were engineering marvels at the time. I mean, they, they, they rivaled things like the Hoover Dam and others, and they were just uh, magnificent engineering feats. And they were done in uh, record time. And even to today, those plants produce between 20 and 25% of all of the states generated electricity. So it's really one of the, one of the jewels and assets of the state, which is why, as you said, we, we, if we were another type of organization, we would be private. The reason we're not private is because, you know, we're harnessing the power of the Niagara Falls and the St. Lawrence river, and these precious resources should never be put into private hands. So we'll always remain um, public with our, our, our mission is that, and we've been used as an economic development tool to attract companies in with cheap power Rec and even as recently as last year, the governor, uh, governor Hochul and Senator Schumer announced that Micron technology is going to build the largest chip plant in the country, if not the world in Syracuse. And that was with $5 billion of incentives from the federal chips act, as well as some state incentives, but. The New York Power Authority's low-cost hydropower was worth an additional $500 million of benefit, which was enough to put the thumb on the scale between us and Texas so that New York would win the plant and the jobs. So even, you know, from way back to 1931 to today, we've been a major economic development tool in the arsenal for, for the governor and the state of New York. Uh, we also own 40% of the high voltage transmission grid and the transmission grid is, it's a key foundation to moving power in and around uh, New York state. And that's another big part of our business. The other part of our business is being the load serving entity for major governmental units from, you know, all of New York city government, 
the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey, the New York City Housing Authority, the MTA, Westchester County, and many others. Um, we are the, the major provider of energy, and we are working with all of those entities to help them meet their decarbonization goals. So you know, just in terms of highlights, that's sort of what the New York Power Authority does. So you mentioned decarbonization goals for other governmental and quasi-governmental entities. Um, and the Power Authority has adopted three of, let's call it the most controversial letters in finance, ESG, Environmental Social Governance, as, I don't know if it's an operating goal, but as something to be aware of. And you've issued a number of green bonds. I think you issued a green yes. bond of over $1.2 billion, um, largest bond in the Power Authority's history at that point. Why does the Power Authority consider ESG important? And how does that focus assist it in fulfilling the mission? In, in many different ways, John. So, so ESG, and I guess for those people that don't know, I mean, it stands for environmental social governance in terms of how you run your organizations. And it's become, you know, the buzzword of the day, if you will. And it's been controversial because some places, you know, believe that it's uh, harmful to their core industries, like places like Texas and others where. You know, the, the, the idea that you'd even, you know, consider being fossil fuel free is sort of, uh, fighting words, but where, where we are, it's easy for us because it is part of our DNA. You know, we are 80, over 80% renewable already because of our hydropower. So to get to hundred percent, it's not going to be that difficult. And we can talk about the pieces that aren't because there's a critical need that that provides today, which is sick from mainly our peaker plants which are very clean as, as plants go, natural gas. Uh, they are probably the cleanest plants that are, can be considered fossil fuel in New York state. But, you know, everything we do is really around those three words, E, S, and G, um, whether it be helping the state meet its climate goals, helping our customers meet their climate goals, um, being a good partner in the communities in which we serve, providing jobs to company, you know, providing opportunities for local small businesses, um, MWBE companies and minority women owned uh, enterprises or, or veteran owned service disabled uh, veteran organizations or small businesses, if you will, and providing job opportunities to people and communities in which we do our work. You know, all of those things are really as speak to exactly who we are as a corporation. And it's important to us because, well, A, it's the right thing to do. So we do it because of that, right? We, we believe that this is good for good business for us. It's good for the state. It's good for the communities. We want to make sure that what we do has a all around a positive social impact where we exist. And, you know, and then it serves other purposes. I mean, especially because of our role, we have to lead by example. We have to, you know, sort of walk the walk, if you will. If we're going to go into organizations and tell them that part of our business to help them do energy efficiency projects or help them decarbonize, you know, we have to be able to look at ourselves and say, well, we're, we're the standard or we're the example, we're leading by example. So there's that aspect of it. And when it comes to the finance area, you know, a big part of what we do, we finance our business by issuing bonds, as you mentioned, green bonds which have become popular in the last few years. And there is an appetite for that in the market. And we think we've gotten some benefits out of that. But, you know, more and more, our investors in our bonds, you know, we're competing with others 
and to write by our bonds versus somebody else's. And they're under mandates to give an edge or preference in organizations that are either issuing green bonds or have an ESG plan and mission. And that, you know, sort of aligns with their values and their goals. They then sometimes have target percentages of what they have to buy in their portfolios. So it's great business for us from the, from, you know, me as catering and, and, and to our investor community in order to make our bonds the most competitive they can be, because that's what they want to invest in. They want to see what kind of a company are you. And, you know, even with rating agencies, you know, there's a aspect of rating agencies that are very quantitative. They're also a qualitative aspect, which looks at the quality of management. And what rating agencies have started to do now is use this area of ESG as a proxy for what's the quality of management. If they don't understand their climate risks, if they don't understand the impact they have on their communities, on the workforce, what does that say about the management team? So it's so important in so many different levels to have a real um, commitment to ESG, especially in the business that we're in. Thank you for that. I'm so glad you mentioned the bonds and the rating agencies because so much of the discussion around ESG has been about the stock market, which is secondary trading in stocks. And you're doing primary issuance and fixed income. And people sometimes miss how important it is for that. At this point in your career, what's exciting to you? What are you passionate about? What makes you get up in the morning? Well, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the job I have now, because I think, well, Power Authority has done some great things over the years. Right now is a critical time, not only the authority, but for New York State and energy transition. This is the biggest rebuild of the electric grid since it was created. There's never been an investment that's going to happen like this for another 100 years, let's say. Hitting the 70% by 30 goals are going to be very difficult, um, but it's a, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to lead this sort of transition away from fossil fuel to renewable power and in a way that makes it reliable, clean, hopefully affordable. But, you know, these are important things, you know, climate risk and climate change is something uh, very significant that we're all facing. And I think the fact that we could argue about is it real? Is it not real? What happens if this doesn't happen or that doesn't happen? But right now it's the law and we have to comply with the law. And that's what the legislature and the governor had decided, you know, several years ago. And it's one of the most aggressive laws in the country. And our job is to execute on that law and make it happen. And uh, to me, that's exciting. And I think, you know, you know, being a part of shutting down old plants and bringing in offshore wind or onshore wind or providing solar. You know, we're involved in the project right now. We're going to put solar panels on the rooftop of as many New York City schools as we can. Um, build, you know, solar throughout um, all of New York City's uh, footprint. We're building out in JFK, which is going to help power uh, the uh, airport as well as the community around the airport. So that community will have solar power powering them instead of a fossil fuel plant. I mean, these things to me are very exciting because it's a generational opportunity to be involved in something like this that's never going to happen again. We talk about infrastructure. Uh, the two big projects that are going on right now, one is called the Chippy Project, Champlain-Hudson 
project, which is going to bring uh, hydropower from Canada down into New York City. Uh, that's being done by a company called TDI and Hydro Quebec. We're not involved in that, but we're involved in a project called Clean Path, which is with Invenergy, another company called uh, Forward Power. And uh, together with NIPA, we are building also a $3.4 billion transmission line, plus another $8 billion of investment in onshore wind and solar that will also bring um, over seven terawatts of power from upstate New York into New York City, again, allowing them to shut the fossil fuel plants that New York City relies on. Now, we, we call it the tale of two grids, because if you see all the renewables in the state are upstate where there are no people, and all of the fossil fuel plants are downstate where all the people are. So we're going to shut all the fossil fuel plants downstate and have and move that renewable power from upstate to downstate. And that that's sort of the bigger plan, if you will. But when you talk about infrastructure, this is a an $11 billion project together with about an $8 billion project with Chippy. The two of those together, $19 billion projects, I would argue it's the biggest infrastructure project in the country today. I mean, they used to say the Gateway Project, which I was involved with a little bit when I was at the Port Authority, um, which was around 10 billion, 11 billion. They were calling that the largest infrastructure project in the country. And this now sort of dwarfs that. So it is a, it, it is a really interesting time to be in the middle of energy transition in infrastructure building. And both of those things right now are, you know, sort of in their, uh, in a renaissance, if you will. Great. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax? Um, usually either, uh, listening to music or either, you know, at home or going out to see live music. I'm a big fan of going out and seeing all kinds of live music and concerts and things like that. So I continue to enjoy that to me. That always helps me uh, get my mind off whatever else it is I'm doing. So that's really a passion. What are you reading? So reading a couple books, um, that I really find interesting. There's one that's called human compatible and it was off of the, uh, Elon Musk's reading list. And it was really about thoughts around AI and what that's going to mean for society and ethical, moral issues around that. And how are we, how are we preparing ourselves for this unknown? You know, some people say it's the greatest invention since fire. Others say it will destroy mankind. So, you know, you got that big wide gap, but certainly we haven't thought through. So it's a fascinating, thought provoking book. I uh, also read a book, uh, reading a book, uh, which is very long. Uh, it's called Life Force, and it's with Tony Robbins and a, a doctor who studied longevity. And um, they talk about all the great medical breakthroughs that we're going to see in the next five years that we probably thought were 30 years off and all the great promise this will hold and all the other things that they've done through their studies as to how you can extend your life and uh, live a, a longer, healthier life with a good quality of life. And uh, I guess the other book recently I, I read, which I really also enjoyed and recommend, called Never Split the Difference. And it's a book written by a guy named Christopher Voss, who was the lead hostage negotiator for the FBI. And, and he gives a lesson about what it means to be a hostage negotiator and the skills involved in that, but how do you, you can take those skills and apply it to your everyday life. 
whether it be in business or getting your kid to do their homework. They're all the same skills. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you go? Well, I'd have to say Paris because I'm going there in a couple of weeks. So if I said someplace else, I'm like, well, I shouldn't be going there in a couple of weeks. A four-day conclusion. Okay, last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you whisper in their ear? I would say, you know, you got to make each day count. You got you to gotta value time. You got to value time more than, more than money and more than other things because it's a, uh, it's a diminishing resource. You can have all the money in the world, but you can't buy more time. So I think people get caught up in their lives and they wake up and you say, where did the last 20 years go? Or, oh my God, I can't believe I have, I'm at the back end of my life. And I, you know, so I think that's the one thing, um, maybe I've woken up to. So, uh, I would, I would share that. Great advice. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik with our special guest, Adam Borsky. I, I think you can see why I really wanted Adam to come on this. The level of sophistication, the problems and issues that the public sector deals with, it isn't easier. Sometimes it's harder. It does count. And Adam has taken his own advice of making time count to make a difference. Uh, thanks so much, Adam. Really appreciate it. Yep. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukonik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.